I'm Carol Little, and you're listening to Third Sector Buzz, a digital platform created for the nonprofit community to shine a spotlight on high-performing organizations that are doing needle-moving work to create more vibrant communities. Our guest today is Katie Caldwell, CEO of the largest nonprofit community health system in Texas, Legacy Community Health. Under Katie's leadership, the organization has grown from one clinic to 34 across the Houston region and beyond. Legacy has approximately 1,000 staff, and this year alone, Legacy is projecting a budget of $150 million. Katie has been recognized as a woman on the move by the Texas Executive Women, and most recently, among the women who mean business by the Houston Business Journal. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Carol. Katie, can you take us back to the very beginning? So I'll give you a bit of history of Legacy. Uh, Legacy actually started as the Montrose Clinic. It was founded in the late 70s by a group of gay men who were concerned about discrimination against gay men in the health system. And they started as an STD clinic, and it was a good thing they did because in 1981, with the identification of the first people living with HIV, Montrose Clinic was a first responder in the HIV epidemic. So all through the 1980s, we were uh, uh, responding to the people in our community uh, to whatever they needed. First, it was getting tested, and we learned more about the disease, teaching people about HIV, doing prevention work, and providing palliative care so that people could die with dignity. Then it all changed in 1996 when, with the advent of antiretrovirals, which suddenly gave people living with HIV um, a hope for the future. Um, suddenly, instead of dying within the next few years, they were going to live. So we grew into doing primary health care, not just palliative care, and grew, as I say, HIV during that time period grew our organization providing care for the community, next to the LGBT community. And then we realized that, oh, it was in the, in the late 90s, we were very, very dependent on federal grant money. Uh, the Ryan White Care Act and the funds from the Centers for Disease Control were our pretty much primary funding sources, along with a bit of philanthropy and a few fees in miscellaneous income. But really and truly, it was we were completely dependent on grant funds. And we grew fairly well in the HIV space with the grant funding. In about 2000, in 2005, there was another HIV organization serving people living with HIV called the Assistance Fund. And the, both the Montrose Clinic and the Assistance Fund were very healthy organizations. But the then executive director of the Assistance Fund, Ken Malone, and I were talking and realized how many patients we had in common, meaning the patients that the Assistance Fund was serving, they were pretty much, you know, 90% of the people they were serving were our patients. So we brought the boards together and we merged the two organizations, which created Legacy Community Health, and we have continued to grow from there. At that time, we were about a $10 million organization. This was 2005. 90% 90% of, that, of those funds came from federal funds or state funds. It was all government grants. And the other 10% was philanthropic dollars. Early 2000s, and through the merger with the Assistance Fund, 
to become legacy, we were about 90% grant funded, and the remaining amount was philanthropy. And while we were breaking even every year, we knew that this was not a sustainable model. And I went to a conference in 2001, and I heard a presentation about federally qualified health centers and the advantages to becoming a federally qualified health center. So I came back and talked to the staff and said, we're going to become a federally qualified health center. And they went, a federally qualified what? Um, my board went, a federally qualified what? So at that point, we started on what I call our learning journey of what is a federally qualified health center, what would it entail to become one, what advantages are there, what disadvantages, what would we gain and what would we lose when we became a federally qualified health center. And we went through quite an ordeal over about a five-year period, both understanding what it meant, realizing that if we became a federally qualified health center, we would have to expand the population that were our patients, meaning at that point in time, 90% of our patients were people living with HIV and or from the LGBT community. And what did that mean if we expanded beyond seeing people in that community? And uh, what would we have to do with the board? And then, but what would it mean from a funding perspective, from a business perspective? And how would our business model have to change? And we realized that our business model needed to change because we weren't sustainable with 90% of our funds coming from government grants. The federally qualified health center model, which would, while a lot of it is federal funding, it would still vary our uh, our funding streams and open up way more opportunities for uh, funding than we had at that point in time. When you say it would open up more funding opportunities, what do you mean by that? Sure. There are, in, in my view, three main advantages to being a federally qualified health center. First, there's a grant funding stream from the federal government. Okay. Second, you get a cost reimbursement rate for any Medicaid and Medicare patients that you see. And by cost reimbursement, to define it for people who don't know, a private physician will get a set payment for seeing a primary care patient on Medicaid. And through the federally qualified health system model, we are allowed to roll in pretty much all of our costs for seeing those patients into our fee that we bill Medicaid and Medicare for. By getting this enhanced rate, we are able to do more and see more people and see people who are uninsured. Another advantage is we can purchase medications under what's called the 340B pharmacy program, which is basically a public health rate to purchase medications, which means we can offer medications to our patients at a deeply discounted rate. And we can also create a revenue source for other patients of our system who have other means of insurance so we can bill their insurance and make money on the medication. The other arm of it is that all of our malpractice coverage is through the Federal Tort Claims Act, which means we pay virtually no medical malpractice insurance for our providers. And that, especially in the obstetrics area, is a huge savings. We would never be able to do obstetric care if we did not have Federal Tort Claims Act coverage, for instance. Wow, that's amazing, Katie. I had no idea that there were all those advantages. In the state of Texas, the only people who are qualified for Medicaid are adults who are very poor and fully disabled 
or children under the age of 18, again, in a low-income family. So, yes, the FQHC model is geared toward serving underserved communities. We are required to locate our facilities in neighborhoods that the federal government has deemed either as a physician shortage area or as a neighborhood with a lower-income population. So... At that time, were there any successful FQHCs in the Houston area? Yes, there were um, I think two at that point. One was Healthcare for the Homeless, and the other was uh, Central Care, and they were both. But there were other organizations that were at the same time looking at becoming federally qualified health centers. And under the George W. Bush administration, there was a large push to expand federally qualified health centers across the country. So there were lots of granting and opportunities to become a federally qualified health center. And that's very important because one of the things we've done and we were able to do was take advantage of a period in time when the federal government wanted to expand healthcare outreach to the uninsured and the underinsured, and we were able to take advantage of what the the federal government's initiative to expand federally qualified health centers. I think there were four at that point in time. In the Houston area, the philanthropic community was really the, the push to open more federally qualified health centers and to help improve the safety net in Houston, the primary care safety net in particular. President Bush learned of the model and realized that it was a very good, in many cases, you know, private, private public sector partnerships they created a federally qualified health center, and it is a model that works. It's been around since the 60s, and it's proven to work, and President Bush was a fan. And, of course, Texas being his home state, he wanted to see more federally qualified health centers in Texas because Texas in the past had not been good at, at embracing the model as other states had. So he made a real push to in Texas to expand the model. Can you tell us what some of the service advantages are to the FQHC model? I, I think there are um, multiple advantages to FQHCs. And one thing is that we are required to offer a certain set of services. We are required at all locations to have, to have um, primary care and behavioral health and easy access to dental care. Um, to me, those are the big three in outpatient care that everyone needs. We're required to do that in order to get the designation. So we're able to offer all these services in one location, which for many low-income people helps them because of the transportation issues with being able to see the whole family in one place to get their care. What made you decide to scale the organization from a standalone FQHC? So... Uh, it was multiple things. When you look at the business model of, of an FQHC and you look at the way the business model of healthcare works right now, now and back in the late 2000s, it's based on a fee-for-service model, meaning you get paid for every single person, every single visit that you provide. So the way that you are able to, to stay alive in the business is to see more people. And the way you can also get efficiencies and cost savings is to scale up. Cheaper to buy multiple cases of gloves, for instance, than it is to buy one box of gloves. Makes sense. Um, so you get the economies of scale 
when you have a larger patient population. The federal government also under the Affordable Care Act was offering, um, again, more incentives to grow and, and grant funds to do this, which we took advantage of those grant funds at the time because it allowed us to get startup money. And the, the wonderful thing I think about the FQHC model is um, if you manage your business correctly, you can basically have your grant funds that helps you start up the organization, the start up a location, and then you're able to get a sustainable billing model through billing Medicaid, Medicare, and private insurance in the mix. And you're able to see uninsured people. And when you do uninsured people, we do, we do that on a sliding scale based on people's ability to pay. So because you have all these revenue streams, you can offer services to anybody who walks through your doors, which is what we're required to do through our contracts with the federal government. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> so here I'm going to ask the inevitable question. What are some of the challenges that you and the organization faced along the way? Well, the first challenge was when we made the decision to go with becoming a fairly qualified health center, we realized that we were going to have to expand our mission beyond just serving the LGBTQ community and people living with HIV. And this was very difficult for some of our board members and some of our staff members to understand, to support. It was a very difficult decision. Um, there were people very committed to our mission of serving those two communities and, and those two intertwined communities. So we lost people on our board. We lost some staff members because they really, they really wanted to focus their time and effort on serving just those two communities. So that was hard and went through a real um, stressful time period with that. We had some backlash in the gay community um, for expanding beyond our one clinic that served the LGBT community. But I firmly believe that if we had not become a fully qualified health center, we would not be here to serve anybody, but the gay community or anybody else today. We're still the largest serving LGBT community organization in, in, in the Gulf Coast, and we still serve 4,000 people living with HIV, and we still have one of the largest HIV prevention programs. So you can, wouldn't say do it all, but still very true to our original mission. We've taken that mission and expanded to other underserved communities. A few years ago, we had, you know, your inevitable site visit from, from the federal government, and part of the site visit is you take people and you tour them, you know, to your various locations. And after when he finished, the, we went to four locations, I think, at that point, and he came back and he said, wow, he says, I've seen a lot of FQHCs in my time. He said, but they usually only serve one population, so they're either geared to serve the Latino population or the African American or the Asian population. He said, I go to your clinics and every single one reflects its community and they serve the people that are in that community. He says, I've never seen anything like it. And I think that's one of the things that makes us unique also is that we really make every effort for our clinics to reflect the neighborhoods that we're in and the people that we serve. Love that. How do you keep such a large and diverse staff at multiple locations motivated? I mean, your role has changed significantly since the days of the Montrose Clinic. My role has changed significantly. And so on a personal level, it, it has taken me 
various points of reflection along the way to understand what my role is, what does it mean you know, to have a productive day, because my productive day back in the early days when I first came to the Montreal Clinic sometimes meant that I got the toilet unstopped and reloaded the uh, paper towel to the bathroom. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, a productive day can mean sitting on a podcast with my friend Carol Little and, <laughs> um, and uh, going out and giving a speech or going and meeting with with donors. And fortunately, I don't have to. Un- I have. We have other people that come and unstop the toilet, which there I have go. to tell you is a big deal. But it also took reflection along the way on whether I was the right person to continue to lead this organization and whether I had the skill sets. And if I didn't have a skill set, what did I need to do to go get those? What kind of continuing education did I need to get? Who else did I need to talk to? What did I need to learn? Did I need coaching? And I think over time that some of that's been reflected back into our organization. The other piece is that I believe that we hire people who are passionate about serving the communities that they're serving, that are passionate about the work that we do, and are committed to doing that work. It's not always easy to find people who want to serve, but I will say in the healthcare world, if you go into healthcare, you pretty much want to serve people. That's your goal in life, is to make people's lives better. So finding people that want to do that and who care about the communities where they live is not as hard as you think. But inspiring them every day when it can get really old uh, after a while is also a role I've learned that I have to take. And I think part of it is everybody continues on a learning journey of their own, whatever that looks like. And the organization has to continue to learn and evolve and grow through time also. Wow, that's a great piece of advice, Katie. I know our listeners will really enjoy, in particular, your personal journey, because as you described, it really has evolved uh, over the years. Looking back, if there was any one thing you would have done differently, what would it be and why? Hmm, That's a tough one. Because there are many things, you know, when you look back, when you reflect back, that you can always point to that, you know, if we had done this, what would have happened, or if we hadn't done it this way. I think I would have taken more time rolling out the notion of the FQHC in the community at large that we served at the time, back in the early 2000s. I did not realize the effect that that would have, that changing our name from the Montrose Clinic to Legacy Community Health and expanding into other neighborhoods and other populations. I really did not understand the effect that that would have in the community that we had been serving for the last 20 years. Okay. So I would do that rollout differently. What would that look like if you were to do it differently? Well, we would have started earlier while we were doing the learning journey with our staff and with the board. I would have expanded it out and brought more community input into the system. And done more community meetings, done more work with our community newspapers about it, educated more people in the community around what this meant and what it didn't mean. So we did not provide the information over time. And, you know, when you don't provide information and there's a vacuum of information, people fill it. And there were a lot of misconceptions on what the future of Dan Montrose Clinic and turning into Legacy Community Health was. Sounds like it was really a tough time for you all, but the results have been remarkable. 
we are still the largest LGBTQ serving organization, you know, in the community. And frankly, we have brought serving the LGBT community and being the largest LGBT serving community in Beaumont now. So that's great. Um, we've taken the lessons that we learned in Houston and have expanded into Beaumont. Very good. Very good. Well, Katie, we're getting close to the end of our time together. And I guess my last question to you would be, if you were to give advice on how to scale an organization to our listeners out there, what would it be? Several things, actually. One would be, first, look at how you can diversify your revenue streams. That is and how you're going to be sustainable. Um, one of my board members said, we need Legacy to be a evergreen organization because I want it to be there for my children, my children's children, and beyond. So what does that mean for the communities that you serve? And diversified revenue streams and services are critical. My fear was back in the 90s and the early 2000s was that if we lost one revenue stream, that meant we had to stop serving people. And so how do you go about finding different revenue streams that are reliable so that if you lose one one grant, you're not out of business. And the other piece is, you know, I just said it, we're a business. No margin, no mission is a tenant of our organization, and everybody understands that. So we can do all the great work in the world, but if we don't get paid to do that work in some form or fashion, we're going to be out of business. Uh, that means in our case now that, you know, a thousand families won't have a paycheck. That is what I take with me every day, is that while we do good work, we have to get paid to do that work. Makes perfect sense to me. It is a business. And I think that's the challenge for many nonprofits is that the community at large doesn't really understand the concept of what a nonprofit is all about. And there is a dual bottom line. Your advice is very, very sage, Katie. You know, I always say, Carol, that a lot of people say, well, you have donors. Well, no, we have investors, and they're investing in our mission. The only thing is, is we don't pay our investors a dividend. We pay them in the work that we do. Love that. I love that. Well, listen, Katie, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your journey with Legacy Community Health Services. And more importantly, I want to thank you and your staff for the tremendous amount of good that you do in the community. You're a shining light for many, many people who otherwise would go without care or end up in a local emergency room. What you do is really critical across the Houston area and beyond. Curious listeners can go to LegacyCommunityHealth.org to learn more about the programs and services offered. And a note to our listeners, if you know of a high-performing nonprofit organization that is making a deep impact, reach out to us at thirdsector@outlook.com. Thank you for listening, and that's The Buzz Today.